All right. Session number eight, God as king, love displayed in government. We're going to go at gazing at the face of God as king. We're making the point in each session related to the reformation of every area of society that we must understand our priority of approach. Most challenges in society are approached from a troubleshooting perspective. And this could be wise if we were really clear on the root issues and if we really knew which priority, how to prioritize which ones to go after. However, we're not. And so in every area of culture, our starting point must always be God. Looking at him, gazing at him, seeing the nuanced aspect of how he is and who he is that is meant to shine in that area of society. We can only re-image that which we have seen. So here on the mountain of government, we want to start by gazing at God as king. Now, God, he's the king, he's the president, he's the governor, he's the prime minister, the emperor, the ruler of heaven and earth. As we gaze at him, the first thing we consider is his all-powerfulness. There is zero rebellion or opposition in heaven. And the speck of a speck of a speck of evil and rebellion that exists on planet Earth is something he could quickly and easily take care of alone. But he has chosen to show powers and principalities that he has a church, a bride, that can also take care of his businesses, his business, and his interests. In his almightiness, he has chosen to crush Satan under our feet, The rebellion that exists on earth, he will put under the feet of his sons. His omnipotence is beyond needing help. That's what omnipotence, he has it all. But he has strategically chosen to, in quote, need us. He chose to need us, of course, out of a desire to be intimate with us and to partner with us. But he also chose to need us in order to make a point to the devil and his unrepentant gang. It's unimaginable and deeply humiliating to Satan that such inglorious and mundane creatures as us could be considered his adversary, as Jesus laid out. Jesus said, your adversary, the devil. It's like he's not worthy enough to be considered the Lord's adversary. He's not big enough, doesn't have enough power. And Satan looks at us, and we seem pretty pitiful creatures to him, and it's humbling for him to think of us in those terms, but he'll learn to get over that. Because not only are we his adversary, but he's going to be crushed and humiliated by the king's sons and daughters who have progressively learned to carry his heart, his power, his authority. The ones who see him correctly as the good God that he is You know, say this despite the fact that God has seemingly purposely handicapped himself by choosing to reveal such a minor percentage of his power and glory to us. See, Satan failed God despite seeing him in, him in all his power and glory. That's why there's no going back for him. He's going to be crushed by the king's loyal kids who haven't even seen 1% of his power and glory. It's as if God has told Satan, I'll beat you blindfolded and with my hands and feet tied up just to make it fair. Because my kids, in my image, will handle things. As we continue to gaze at our king, we are reminded that Scripture says that righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. This means that everything is done from the king's pure heart of integrity and fairness. Our God doesn't need the checks and balances of three branches of government because he is absolute governmental balance personified. He's wired with justice. Our king doesn't have to remind himself to be just and to be fair. He is by nature. If, there's something, if there is something impossible for our God, 
it is just, it's impossible not to be just. Our king is completely perfect in governmental character, in governmental strategy, in governmental execution. He's amazing at every aspect of government. It really is amazing he doesn't get invited more often into governmental matters on earth. And if we truly understood that, he would be, and he is going to be. Instead, of course, the devil lies about him and has us often reverting to an orphan spirit. And we resort to trying to figure out everything on our own. In Jesus, we had our king modeled in an entirely unlikely fashion as compared to earthly kings. Earthly kings demand absolute obedience with no squeaks from their people. They expect to be waited on hand and foot. Jesus modeled a different form of kingship. He came and revealed himself as the servant of all. He allowed his subjects, the king allowed his subjects, to doubt him openly, to disagree with him openly, to mock him openly, and then finally permitted them to violently and cruelly put him to death. Talk about power under restraint. And amazingly, he did all of this so that his doubting, disagreeing, mocking subjects could have the privilege of living eternally in his presence. Wow. I think he must have had multiple second thoughts about that when he was being beaten and bruised. Yet it tells us, and it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He served and suffered for our good even while we were slapping the hand that was feeding us. Now, if you've raised kids, you may have gotten a taste of that, but it is only a taste in comparison. He actually dreamed up every one of the citizens of his kingdom, his kids, and they are the ones that turned on him. This, of course, is a, a perfect perspective of what we are to re-image as we go about reforming the mountain of education. If we love the idea of being involved in government, it shouldn't be because we have a love for bossing people around. That does not qualify as a call. It shouldn't be because we like the way power feels, and furthermore, the possibility of enriching ourselves if we were in government. He is so totally different than that. Even the Godhead among themselves are the perfect picture of humility. You always see the fathers pointing to the son. The son is always telling about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always bragging on Jesus. They take, they, you know, if you listen to them, the other one's the most important one. If you read the father's quotes from the scripture, you would believe Jesus did the most important work. And if you read Jesus' quotes, you might conclude that it was the Holy Spirit that had the preeminent role or the father for sending him so forth and so forth. They perfectly embody governmental humility and power under restraint. They want people choosing the right thing, not being forced into the right thing. Being forced to obey is always considered an immature stage by the Godhead. The fact that there isn't a police force in heaven tells us they have perfectly executed their governmental philosophy. <laughs> they govern so that their subjects can be lifted up even to their level of privilege. There is a difference of reward in heaven, but no classism in heaven. Their divine humility and heart of service has created a utopian government. And as we point out, Jesus said, on earth as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom come. Heaven on earth always starts by discovering what heaven in heaven is like. Our king's perfect government can be described through observed principles, perhaps. But God the king doesn't have to run it by principles. He doesn't run heaven by principles. He runs heaven by nature of who he is. And that then is the goal as we look to bring his government on earth. We want sons and daughters hardwired like he is. Those called to government, hardwired like he is, to step into government and shine with who he is as king. He is the king of kings. We are the kings. 
He is the king of kings. We are to be the king, the kings of the king that shine in society. If we don't approach our assignment in government from this perspective, our government systems will remain broken and destructive. So this becomes an important assignment for us. That's looking just a little bit to the face of God as king. Now we want to look at the rainbow God color. And we already told you that in last session. This is the last color remaining in the rainbow. Um, and so the color associated with reimaging God in society as king the one associated with the mountain of government is the color violet. Um, now, the color violet is actually a medium purple, but was called violet because it was very closely represented by the color of flowers that were called violets. So you can call it purple or violets. And purple is a color historically associated with royalty, nobility, luxury, and power. Uh, purple robes have been worn by people of authority seemingly forever. The color purple is the rarest naturally occurring color of the rainbow. And there's an insight there. There's a message in that as well. Government, when done right, need not be stifling, but seen in a muted measure. Chromotherapy has found that too much purple brings out qualities of irritability, impatience, and arrogance. And too little purple stirs feelings of powerlessness, neglect, and apathy. Is that not so much? I'll read that again because that's good. Chromotherapy has found that too much purple brings out qualities of irritability, impatience, and arrogance. And too little purple stirs feelings of powerlessness, neglect, and apathy. And when we apply that to government, it's quite revealing. Too much government engenders arrogance and entitlement. And not enough government causes us to feel neglected and compounds the orphan spirit. Now, God isn't libertarian, but he is benevolent. And heaven will know he's in charge and ruling. But we may forget that for like a thousand years at a time because the atmosphere itself is just governmental glory. In chromotherapy, this medium purple violet is seen as a color that calms nerves and relaxes the mind. It is also said to heal infections and inflammation. When a properly running government is in place, the people are at ease. And when people are at ease, their immune systems function better, which affects, obviously, their overall health. Proverbs 29.2 says... Proverbs 29.2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people mourn. Now, one day we'll better understand even more of the mystery of how color itself impacts life. But uh, for now, we can, we can see that just what we know of these colors, it is meant to even reveal some aspect of what needs to be restored of God. The restoration of the face of God as king, properly restored into society, will, will provide this effect of relaxing and calming the nerves of society. It's how heaven operates. Heaven, we are at total rest, knowing that we have a just ruler, totally fair, totally for us, totally not lording over us. And that glory, he says, can be made manifest on earth as it is in heaven. So the Revelation 5.12 template that's, that remains as well, there's only one, is love displayed as power. Worthy is the Lamb to receive power, wisdom, strength, riches, honor, glory, and blessing. When we look at this template, we can see clearly that it is power. We've already talked about power as we began this session. Worthy is the Lamb to receive power. The Lamb paid the ultimate price with his blood that we might regain all lost power and then give it back to him. Is that not awesome? God is love, so what does God as love look like in government? Well, the face of God as king in government is the face of power. God's love is expressed as power in the context of government. The Greek word used here in Revelation 5.12 is dunamis, which is really an awesome word. We have some English words like dynamite that find their source here. It's a unique description of power as its root at its root, it means to be possible or can do. 
So the word there, dunamis, at its root means to be possible or can do. It literally means force, power, or might. Uh, This is too complicated to write, I know, but it has this component of wonderful or miraculous attached to it. It's always good. I love to study the words because they have these uh, attached uh, nuances that are just... uh, that bring it alive to another, another level. It's the otherworldly source of that which superimposes in the affairs of men. It's the rule and reign of heaven. When Jesus started his ministry preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand or here. He was speaking of the foundation of this kind of power. He then showed them how his government provided for the power that healed bodies, made blind eyes see, caused paralytics to rise and walk, Power that had over authority over demons with just one word. Our king's government is not just an idea. It's not just a philosophy of politics. It comes in wonderful, miraculous can-do-ness. With that as source, there is no such thing as a governmental or national crisis. Every potential crisis already has a guaranteed can-do solution for it when it comes from the foundation of power of his government. Such a wonderful thing to have on earth as it is in heaven. You know, our God is power. He's mighty power both on earth and in heaven. The worthy lamb died on the cross, and the Bible tells us that it was the resurrection dunamis power that raised him from the dead. It was the dunamis power that then put him in the position of power and authority over every other power. God's power, God's government, then is based and sourced from the dunamis that flows from within himself, his essence. He is wired with justice and he is wired with power. The color purple of how he loves via government is the color of power that relaxes the nerves of all the subjects under the great king. His face of dunamis power is incomplete until it's properly re-imaged and showcased through his sons and daughters as kings and priests on the mountain of government. Our seemingly uh, steep reformation task in government is only impossible if we study the giants that are in that land. Looking too long at problems will always engender doubt and discouragement. Once we gaze, study, and get full of God, the dunamis king, then we become empowered to meet any and every darkness knowing that it too has to bow. So important for all kingdom government workers to understand what they're sourced by. When you're working for his kingdom and you represent him here, he is the source of all power and it's important to know that when we're on this very foreboding mountain. We're used to, I've traveled around the world, ministered to many government leaders, and, and walked beside many believers who are trying to walk and advance up the mountain of, of government. And they have found it's a difficult mountain. But you have to walk in the dunamis power of God as a reality, or you're just turned into a Christian whiner on government. <laughs> Whining is what we do even in government, when we lose sight of who he is for us and how he is for us and through us. We can't forget that the reforming government assignment will always have its absolute power, will will always have his absolute power as a foundation for us to advance from. It literally is a place where we can really take that scripture. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. You have to know that as you advance in government. You have to connect to this aspect, to the, the violet, the purple royalty color of who he is and carry his justice and his power and know that he is greater than whatever the resistance or assignment that's there. Now, I want to take a moment to talk about the angelic forces of God that are on the mountain of government. Those that are assisting in restoring the face of God, the king, to society. And, you know, maybe I'll talk just a moment about that again. I, 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 I don't want to keep belaboring this point, but to, to name angels 
to me, it's something that personalizes the revelation that we have available to us. The scripture does name, of the, of the angels we've given you, does name Michael and Gabriel. And, and I think it names them not because they're the only two we're allowed to know their names, but perhaps so we feel okay with understanding that all of them have a specific call and assignment. And that they're not all just repeat angels of the same grace. Angels are not robots. They're not one size fits all. They're personally and individually wired creations of God, each a prototype in themselves. We're going to know that more when we can see things the way we're supposed to. So stating a name, I believe, assists us in receiving the grace they bring. If, if no name is given them, that's okay as well, but we shouldn't run from names just because of religious opposition. The scripture prohibits the worship of angels as, of course, it should. However, people have applied that to mean we shouldn't even acknowledge angels have individual identities. I don't know about you, but I do appreciate when someone calls me by my name, and I don't feel worship when I'm known by my name. So I just, it's an appeal, depending where this ends up going, can we stop overreaction to the idea of angels that have names? If the Lord reveals that, particularly if there's an insight that's helpful to us in their name. And I think that's generally when he lets us know a name, it's because there is helpful revelation in the name because it's telling us what they're assigned to do. Now, my personal belief is that the great angel of this mountain of government is Uriel, U-R-I-E-L. And his name means flame or fire of God, which is a perfect description of the power of God. And his assignment entails the restoration of the face of God's firepower to society, dunamis. I believe that very possibly that he's the angel of Revelation 10, verses 1 through 3, where it describes a mighty angel clothed with a cloud that had a rainbow on his head with his face like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. And he goes on to say that he puts his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now that's an awesome size angel there. And if he isn't the great angel of the mountain of government, I suggest that the angel of this mountain exudes similar power and majesty. I just think there's something about personalizing angel armies that's more invigorating than theoretically knowing they're out there. Uh, and again, if you do study and research and you find out that some of the names that I mentioned, well, other occult religions have angels that use these names, don't throw that out because of that. You don't throw out the real because the counterfeit exists. All those false religions, new age, things like that, they have Gabriel and Michael listed as well. And just because that happens... You know, same thing, $100 bills. You stop using $100 bills just because they're counterfeited? Okay, you got the point. So, I believe Uriel may have been the angel of 2 Kings 19.35 that says, went into the camp of the Assyrians, and it says, this great angel took out 185,000 in one night. Now, that's a powerful angel, and these are the guys on our side as we arise on the mountain of government. Doesn't it strike a little more confidence just pointing them out in Scripture and being aware in some intentional way that their presence is available to be with us. It reminds us of, again, God doesn't lack the firepower to deal with sin and rebellion on earth. If one of his angels can take out 185,000 evildoers in one mission, then God could take care of all rebellion that easily. However, the mark of our God is power under restraint. That's how his government operates, power under restraint, as he goes after hearts and not just scalps. We want to face our stout mission on the mountain of government knowing the awesomeness of our God as king. We also want to know about the specific angelic hosts assigned to the task of restoring his image to society. Think we want to be those used to asking the Lord to please send the help, particularly if you have an assignment in government. You want to do that knowing he has commissioned angels to walk beside you. I believe if you have a primary governmental call in the mountain of government, you literally get tens of thousands of angels assigned to assist you in that role. And so there's something about learning the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, how to work and move with them and not be ahead of them or behind them. 
So let's now go into the big lie about God on the mountain of government. Let's scan the spiritual battlefield and clearly identify the battle points and strategies. Uh, I believe it's Lucifer himself that orchestrates the opposition in government and raises himself as the illegal principality to be cast down. He uses broken people. We must, we must remember that people are not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. Lucifer's access is always through a lie. And it's through a lie that those that are in government agree with and allow him access through that. He sells a lie and those that buy into empower him with their agreement of that lie. He presents an argument against the knowledge of God and this argument, philosophy, or mentality is his stronghold. I'm saying this over and over because we want it to enter our rote memory of how the battle scene is set up and what it is we're about. So the question before us then, just what is that lie? Think about it. When government is at its worst, it causes us to feel like our government our leaders don't really care about us. They care about their power, their agenda, and their control. The lie is simple and related to all the other lies that the enemy advances. The lie perpetuated about God in our current government system is God doesn't care about us. The lie that's advanced, current government system, the world, God doesn't care about us. Now, if you remember what was described as a feeling brought on by too little of the color purple, we talked about a little while ago, was a feelings of powerlessness and neglect. The way government presently runs, we're, we're often left to feel simultaneously abandoned, exploited, and like we're just another number. That's what happens when government is in the wrong spirit and in the wrong measure. Honestly, social media has probably caused a great improvement in recent years as opposed to how things used to be because citizens can now quickly make their voices heard and they must be taken into consideration quickly. They can blow up Twitter world and everything else like that with complaints and, and governments are having to respond quicker and not simply every four years when there's an election. Now, there's, here's something... I found to be profoundly interesting about government and the lie of God does not care about us. There's an article written in Geneva in 1975 by a Dr. Pierre Rentschnik. And it was entitled, Orphans Lead the World. In this article, Dr. Pierre goes on to say how he did extensive research to determine if he could find commonalities of the 300 most powerful government leaders of history up until that time, 1975. To his shock, to his surprise, he discovered that the common theme of the top 300 was that they were all orphaned, literally or de facto at some point or another. The theory that was generated from this observation was that the insecurity produced in children that were emotionally deprived aroused in these children an exceptional willpower which drove them into government with an aim of controlling or transforming their world. So amazingly, those with the greatest vision for transformation were orphans themselves. This reality led the New World Structures This reality, if you, again, this was from 1975 before, and so really all the governmental structures of the world that, that exist, the options that are out there, uh, the philosophies of government were built by these orphans, by the assumptions of orphans that if God exists, he doesn't look out for us and we have to take care of ourselves. And among these leaders were Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Cardinal Richelieu, George Washington, Charles V, Queen Victoria, Golda Meir, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Vladimir Lenin, Fidel Castro. What an incredible discovery of Satan's successfulness at strengthening this core lie. 
Now, obviously the problem is not that they were orphans, nor can we lump them all in the same category. I'm not saying that, as some of these leaders were good leaders, maybe even great leaders. But we see that many unhealed orphan spirits made it to the top of the mountain of government and created world government structures built upon the assumption that God, if he exists, either doesn't care about us, about us or can't care. So we see that this God doesn't care about us lie is responsible for many of our present societal structures. Sometimes what would, could be considered a wise matter of planning is advanced beyond what it should be. We see an example of this in the area of safety nets called insurance. We have created insurance for everything, and it's sold as that which gives us peace of mind on earth. This thinking, this stinking thinking, only serves to assist the devil's central lie on the mountain of government, you know, because God can't be trusted to save us from devastation. We therefore have to look out for ourselves. And we're in a subtle way weaned off any trust in God into trust in our insurance plans. Now, I'm not morally against insurance. And there is a way to have both insurance and trust in God. But it is definitely not a natural partnership. Insurances are all built on the idea you have to look out for yourself. And the more of this you lean on for peace of mind, the more you have built a hope on a lie. As David said, blessed is a man who puts his trust in the Lord. It's amazingly, they'll call so many of these insurances trust things. Whenever we buy insurance, and many of it are, of course, state-mandated, we should speak out a disclaimer to the Lord and tell him, by the way, this insurance I just purchased is not my confidence. Amen. <laughs> you are my confidence. You have to tell yourself the truth so you can walk in it. You have to be intentional with that so you don't go get taken out by the lie of the enemy and start living that out. That's how to intentionally put your trust in the Lord. You tell him you trust him. You put it in him. I trust you. I'm doing this because this is what I have to. My wife will freak out. My grandparents, you know, my in-laws, if I don't have this, whatever the state says I have to do, I want you to know. I know that you're my confidence. You're my safety net. I have no other safety net. Remember, the highest form of maturity, advancement you can attain to is absolute dependence on him. So you don't want to do anything that takes you away from that. So if the God doesn't care about us is the lie championed by Lucifer in government, and then the truth that overcomes the lie is, here's the truth, God does care about us. <laughs> simple lies, simple truths. This truth must be the foundation of every correct re-imaging of government on the earth as it is in heaven. When we operate out of the knowledge that he cares and that he is power, then we make a point to invite him in at every turn possible. When God is recognized and invited in as the almighty, can-do, dunamis, power, man of power, almighty, he does the amazing thing of working on our behalf beyond what we know to look out for on our own. He looks out for us better than we can look out for ourselves when he's invited in. The assumption of his power and greatness, as well as the assumption that he cares about every injustice in our lives, must be firmly established in anyone called to positively affect the mountain of government on, for the kingdom of God. You must carry that inside. You must carry assurance of his power in your own life that he is just and he is able to fulfill justice. A government that's run by people who see him as king will pass on to its constituents a healed perspective of God that relaxes nerves and gives peace. You know, and conversely, a government that is bent on proving they can figure everything out because God is, in fact, not on the job will be one that passes on to its constituents' anxiety. The challenges of government almost always exceed human capability to properly respond to. It's just a reality. The bigger your nation, like the United States, the more so that is. You know, think on the matter of immigration alone. 
Is there a more impossible task than simultaneously appeasing the fears of the long-term citizens, long-term citizens and still showing concern to the new ones? We have fear-dominated arguments going back and forth. The established ones fear losing jobs. There's going to be freeloading of the various government programs. It's going to be terrorism's going to come in if the borders are not locked down. And the new ones, the ones trying to come in or just come in, the new ones fear discrimination, being rejected, summary de- deportations, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Then we, we have really even middle-of-the-road perspectives that are neither hardline stances against immigration nor a desire for open boundaries. It is literally impossible to please all the people, particularly if God and his wisdom and power are not invited into the process. But if we go back to the fact that he is the almighty, can-do-anything God, when we start from that perspective, then we governmentally start from assumption that God has a way that is right and just and compassionate, all wrapped in one. When we start with that assumption, we realize that we are only after discovering what that solution is, not if there is a solution. See, when you operate from him and you know who you are and who he is in you, that's how you will advance in government. It's not, is there a solution? It's, what is it? There is always a solution to any and every problem when God the King is invited in, and it's always the best solution. We have the inner city crises here in America right now, and it, in fact, does have a heavenly solution. Every seemingly complicated matter of society has an existing solution from the God of all power. It's impossible to bring before God something he considers a quandary. It's impossible to bring before God something that he considers a quandary. Answers and solutions naturally spill out of his identity as God the King. Doing the impossible is his norm. Whether the solutions disappoint some of the people in the short run, they'll all see in the long run the wisdom, the justice, the prudence, the compassion of his strategic solution. So serving God in government is all about finding solutions. Solutions for practical and political quandaries that require a dunamis power, a source of can-do-ness. It isn't just a can-do mentality. It is a can-do reality. Don't start climbing the mountain of government until you are soaked and pickled into his can-do-ness. With God the King as our acknowledged source, there are no political, no public debates, no political debates over law that are, or any laws that are outside his jurisdiction of insight and power. You know, for example, he knows how to address the homosexual debate with so much wisdom that no one feels uncared for. He knows how to project and promote into policy the right wording that simultaneously watches over the supreme right of freedom of individual choice as well as protect the overall population from any general moral decline in society. If we are to be involved in governmental reformation, we really must understand his great value for personal freedom, for personal freedoms. You know, we have, our our Christian tendency is always, it has been for 400 years in America, it's always been towards order, which focuses on outside-in pressures and restraints, while God's tendency is always towards freedom, which is an inside-out restraint. Adam and Eve were put in a garden, you know, the Garden of Eden, with a do-not-touch tree at their disposal. It was put at their disposal because it was important to him. It's like, why did he do that? He could have saved them from sinning by not giving them the freedom. But he puts that there because it's important to him that their choices of righteousness be given along with the freedom to choose wrongly. He runs government where he wants there to be a freedom to choose wrongly. Let that soak in a little bit. 
you know, of course, depending on what we're talking about, we must provide the freedom to choose wrongly when that freedom will not directly affect any other. It's not a freedom to murder. Another example, we will never win the abortion battle through laws and ordinances alone. Though it would be great to one day have laws and ordinances that reflect the people who have chosen righteousness, it's not the way it's going to happen. No society is conclusively headed for judgment from God. It's going to tell you that. No society is conclusively headed for judgment from God just because they allow their people to abort or marry the same sex or watch bad movies. <laughs> These are all trees of the knowledge of good and evil options in society that reveal actual hearts and their righteousness as opposed to perceived righteousnesses. True righteousness always takes place in the context of free will. There's no such thing as imposed righteousness. The kingdom of God does not advance through compulsion. And that was pointedly revealed to us through the person of Jesus. He could have showed up with 10,000 angels of glory and intimidated the whole of society to fall in line and obey every whisper he made. You imagine? You can, just, you can see that. But he isn't after subordination at any cost. He could have come throwing down lightning bolts everywhere, and everybody's like, you better do whatever he wants. And we still keep, we, we talk as Christians like that's going to happen soon. He could have done that already. There's an honorable way he advances. He's after winning hearts who then freely choose his ways, and we have to get this. We must learn this aspect of his face to properly advance him in government. Properly run government steers a heart towards God without imposing God. Therefore, it cannot be an oppressive police state type government that can reflect God at all. Our God truly cares for every one of his citizens on earth and he's fully capable and empowered to heal any and every natural crisis that could show up if we would simply invite him in as king. As to why, why you know, the questions are, why does he allow starving in Africa and horrible suffering around the world? Why hasn't he stopped the AIDS crisis? Why are nations' economies still collapsing, thus devastating the people? He is asking us, why have we allowed starvation and suffering? Why haven't we stopped the AIDS crisis? He's ready to reveal his solutions, but first, we must care because we believe he cares. Then we must access his power because we believe he has power for solving all the governmental issues that are related. We must come out of agreement with the lie that God doesn't care about us. We must invite him in, and where he's acknowledged governmentally, he will come in and show his awesome care. Again, as Haggai chapter 2 says, he is the desire of the nations. He saved Egypt and all the idolatrous people of that land because he was acknowledged through the person of Joseph. But it was Pharaoh who received him, even if he didn't receive salvation. He received that face of who he is as king. The face of God the king is such a wonderful facet of who God is, and he only waits to be properly seen and revealed. This is our Reformation assignment on the mountain of government. All right. Amen. Oh, man, I can feel God's excitement over each one of us as we are just taking time out of our lives to just look at him and just talk about him and meditate on him. Even in, with our best intentions in the body of Christ, most of the time that we gather together, unfortunately, is spent on trying to fix ourselves, right? And um, I don't know, I just, I can sense his excitement over all of this. I hope you can too. All right, when we encounter God as king, 
we are assured of our royalty. When we encounter God as king, we're assured of our royalty. There's a song, I can't remember what it's called, but it's um, from the soundtrack of the Chronicles of Narnia. And there's a line in there that says something like, um, we're prince and princesses on the way to our throne, destined to reign, something like that. I I probably have it off, but it's so impacting. All right, to the degree that you can feel this resonate in you, to that degree we want to really magnify the heart of our God as king. I need to know that God cares about me and I'm not just another person on earth that he has to tolerate. Do you ever feel that way when you interact with the government? I've had some interactions that have definitely left me feeling that way, but that is not the heart of this king. I need to know that his throne is not only approachable, but that I belong next to him. And he's able to make me ready to rule and reign with him as a servant filled with love for him and his kingdom. I need to know that he's protective over me and my freedom, that he's just and merciful, and that he's maintaining an atmosphere around me that I can thrive in. I need to see God's face as king. We don't need our government to like make our lives successful, but we need our government to help maintain an atmosphere around us that gives us potential to thrive should we choose to make the right choices on our end, right? It's that delicate balance that our generation is quarreling over, trying to find out and discover the role of government. Don't let that wrestling around us that we sense in government, don't let that freak us out and, and, and let's be careful not to jump in as if we don't already know where it's going to land. Our generation right now is wrestling over this, um, this tension, this truth that's held in tension of how involved is government supposed to be in our lives? What does it owe us? What do we owe it? What is, what's safe government? Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Meaning, it already started, it's already increasing. We will discover it. But it's taking time. Remember, the patience of God. We are, as a society, we are connecting the dots. And eventually, those who have eyes to see and refuse to reject God will realize that it was him all along. But they're already searching for it and wrestling over it. So we don't have to panic. We do not have to panic over America. We don't have to panic over, is, are we going to figure out this balance of government? I believe with all my heart that we are. And we're going to do it in a way that allows other governments to come on board and walk that direction with us. Call me naive, but I'm believing. All right, let's close our eyes and Just hear and receive the heart of our God's kingly heart over us. My sons and daughters, kings and queens in training on the way to the throne. In order to understand my kingdom and my government, you must know that your experience with earthly government is quite inferior to mine. My kingdom is the context in which my heart as your king is seen. As your king, I'm delighted to serve you. I'm delighted to share my power with you and display to and through you my better ways of doing everything. I created you with royalty in your veins, whether you ever feel it or not. I created you to know me so well that you care about what I care about. You are an extension of me and my kingdom in the earth. You are proof 
that I rule and reign with wisdom and mercy and justice. My government, the way I do things as an extension of my very heart towards humanity and creation, my government was set into motion before time. And what I set into motion always, only, ever increases. My kingdom, my government is always, only, ever increasing. If you have eyes to see, the kingdom has come and is coming like a runaway train that cannot be stopped. It's coming in you, around you, and through you, and all who are mine. Open your eyes. Open their eyes to the good news. My kingdom is overtaking your lesser deficient ways of doing things. Believe and tell them, orphans no longer, sons and daughters, together we shall reign on the earth. We will reign over all sickness, over all disease. We will reign together over poverty and lack. We will reign together over every injustice and over every broken system. You and I, we will reign over every lie that is ever been told or even implied about who I am and who you are to me. Whoa. Thank you, Holy Spirit. The weightiness of the glory of your kingdom and your majesty just overwhelms us and moves us. We're in awe of how you do things, how you secure our hearts to your ways and to your heart for us. Thank you, O King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This podcast was made available by contributions from listeners like you. To donate, go online to restore7.org. Thank you.